Good morning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you this morning in the knowledge of God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to uh, have this opportunity to preach before you. I often thought, should I ask the congregation for grace this morning as it's, it's been about a year and a half, so I'm a little bit rusty, church, so uh, y'all bear with me. I'm very thankful for all the teaching opportunities and preaching opportunities that I've had. If you remember this month, Andrew alluded to it just a little bit ago during our, our announcements. This month is all about Missions Month. And by way of reminder, Andrew helped us understand more last week about what the mission of the church is not. But also he gave us some helpful definitions that I'm going to remind you of right now. Andrew defined the church as the ecclesia or the called out ones. Peter and his apostle Andrew gave this verse for us in 1 Peter 2. He goes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, a people who have received mercy. Andrew mentioned that the mission of the church, there was a specific task and a specific purpose. He did a wonderful job explaining to us what the mission of the church was not. He did a great job of explaining to us that there is an actual mission that exists. And that mission exists because we live in a fallen world. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. If you missed last week the sermon, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to go back to our website and check that message out again. Again, today we're going to be actually talking about what the mission of the church is. And many know that I, I'm a Bible teacher at a local Christian school, and I also have the privilege of being a high school girls basketball coach. It takes a lot of patience to teach basketball. It takes a lot of patience to teach the Bible, but even more patience to teach and to coach basketball. And many know that in any kind of sport, there must be a specific game plan. If you go into a game where you're facing a good opponent and you don't have a game plan, you're in trouble. In our case, we might be facing a team who has a super dominant player who plays on the inside who we know we have to have a game plan to keep this individual player off the rebound so they can't get any second, second chance scoring opportunities. We have to have a game plan on the offensive side as well, where we expose, we know in advance, probably through a scouting report, I'm already watching film, where we expose the weaknesses of that team. We take advantage of that and we use it to our advantage. Before tip-off, I explain the game plan again to my girls. Many times I call a timeout, first, second, third, fourth quarter, going into overtime to reiterate what this game plan is. We must have a game plan. There must be a time whenever I use that timeout, maybe not to rebuke or admonish my girls, maybe not even to remind them, but to encourage them to stay the course in church, if you have responded to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins and placed your trust in him, then you, by God's grace, you are already on the team. This wasn't your own doing. No, this was not something that we were picked for. It wasn't because you're good looking. It wasn't because you were really smart. It's not because you were a really good person and, and God saw you and was like, you know what, that so-and-so is a really good person. I'm going to go ahead and call him to be on my team. No, this was a gift by the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the good news, church. He doesn't make any cuts. If you're on the team, he doesn't make any cuts. He will not cast anyone out. And here's the thing. We're calling a timeout. And this is our holy huddle. And Lord willing, I'm going to remind you 
this morning of the church's game plan. I'm going to remind you of the mission of the church, but here's the thing. Just like my timeouts are limited in my games, no longer than 60 seconds, I usually will get a few of them, have to use them very wisely. We can't stay in this holy huddle. We must go out, and we must do what the Lord commands us to do. Would you please turn with me in your copy of God's Word? We're going to be in the 20th chapter of Matthew. For context's sake, I'm going to be beginning in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 16 instead of verse 18. If you're using a pew Bible, I think we have two different kinds. One's bigger, one's smaller, but it should be around 784, 784. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. Church, this is the Great Commission. If you were raised in church, you are very familiar with this verse. These are the climatic marching orders of the church that Jesus gives at the end of his Gospels, save of John, and also the book of Acts. Years ago, I remember reading a headline from a Barna report. It said something like 51% of churchgoers know nothing about the Great Commission. And again, if you were raised in the church, you probably have some idea of what the Great Commission is. But in this report, this data concluded that 51% of churchgoers did not. And the Great Commission is one of those verses, like me, if you're raised in probably a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church, maybe this is one that you memorized in the King James, where uh, he goes, Jesus goes, Go ye therefore. And lo, I'm with you always. It's always fun to repeat those in the KJV. But church, even the term, Great Commission, if your Bible has that headline in it, should, from the ESV, this little subtitle, this subheading of the Great Commission is not inspired. The Bible doesn't even use this language. But yet, even though it hasn't always been referred to by the Great Commission, even though it's not inspired. This is something that we should not forget, as in the 51%. This is something that we should not lose focus on in practice. And Lord willing, this morning I'm going to be hopefully taking us and giving an in-depth look of what it looks like to walk this out. This is Jesus' last command and our first priority. The mission of the church is given by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus, the person who is speaking in this section of Matthew. Now we know why it's great. It's great because the need is great. It's great because it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is saying these words. What about commission? Commission implying the great commission is something that we participate in co-mission it's something we participate in in other words it's not only us making disciples whenever we are participating in that this is an activity where the king of kings and the lord of lords the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost he allows us to participate as weak sinful instruments in his hands 
Yes, praise be to God. People that have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, me and you. This is what we were created for. Created for his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do works which he prepared beforehand. To participate in this great commission with the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back with me to the text. The great commission, look with me there, begins in verse 18 with an encouragement of all encouragements, a glorious indicative and great news. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the one who Paul in Colossians 1 says all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things are held together. We know and have some idea of what authority means. Many of you have had good bosses or difficult bosses. Maybe some of you have difficult bosses right now. Andrew and I used to be police officers. We were commissioned by the state that we used to work for where we had authority in different capacities in certain levels. Parents, you've been given authority in your home by God. This is for you to exercise. School teachers, I know there's a few of us who are in here. We have authority over our students. Authority. It signifies control. It signifies power. A person with authority will make decisions. This is a person who can render judgments. And there is one who has authority above all authority, and that is the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. If you remember in Matthew 7, 28 and 7, 29, the crowds were astonished whenever Jesus was teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority, unlike their scribes. In John 10, we're told that Jesus made the claim that he, is, that he has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. In Matthew 9, we learn that Jesus not only heals a paralytic, but he also forgives sins. Jesus spoke with authority. He taught with authority. He exercised authority even over nature. If you remember that moment, whenever he was asleep in the boat, a storm was coming, a storm had arrived. His disciples were super scared. And what does he do? He wakes up from his slumber and he calms. Peace, be still. Jesus has authority over nature where it left his followers astonished. Who is this? that even controls the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves obey him. His authority continues even over the dominion of Satan coming across the garrison demoniac. If you remember, Joel preached upon this whenever we were going through our book study of Mark. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus and his disciples were walking and near the tombs from afar, there was a demon-possessed man. And this demon-possessed man recognized Jesus from afar. And he doesn't charge at Jesus, and he doesn't try to fight Jesus. He runs over to Jesus, and he falls prostrate before him. And he begged, and he pleaded, Jesus, Son of man, Son of God, do not torment me before the appointed time and Jesus exercising his authority casted pigs I'm sorry casted the demons inside a herd of pigs understand church this is super important listen to me here without the legitimacy of the claim all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me without that legitimacy the command and the commissioning to go would be irrelevant but it's not irrelevant because he has in authority the imperative to go therefore should be taken seriously not only taken seriously 
but it should give us much encouragement to know that he is in control. One commentator helps us. He goes, God does not send out his church to conquer. No, he sends us out in the name of the one who has already conquered. We go only because he reigns. So Jesus has all authority. What are we to do then? Let's go back to the text. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. By this text, church, we are to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. It's important to note that within these verses of Matthew and other Great Commission texts, there are not any specific instructions for whom this is given, meaning that Jesus commissioned the first disciples, but it did not end with their death. As your Savior, Jesus is also your Lord, and he expects his followers today to carry out this mission. Therefore, this mission should be a Christian lifestyle, not as a ministry selective. The Lord has gifted certain people. Amen. But making disciples is not a hobby. It's not a special calling for some of us. It's a mandate for all. One pastor said, when it comes to a calling, we don't need a voice. We have a verse. And that verse is Matthew 28, verse 19. So church, because of this authority, because it wasn't lost with the disciples in their death, it carries on to today. This is something that we continue. And what do we do? We make disciples. And we make disciples through evangelism. Andrew pointed out last week that it's not only through evangelism. And a big amen to that. We make disciples through a message of proclamation. The message, however, that we use cannot, must not be our own message. It's not a message of God loves you. That message is incomplete. That message is man-centered. It's not forsaking, proclaiming the message and adopting to preach the gospel and use words if necessary mantra. Greg Gilbert, in our book that we often hand out after church to new guests, in God is the gospel, he says this, we are not the good news itself. Failure to understand this point will hamper our evangelism from the very beginning because we won't think it is necessary to share the gospel message. We will simply hope that the gospel rubs off on other, others as we live our lives. However, being good people and even giving and loving sacrificially won't tell people who Jesus is, what he did, and why he did it. The good news message we are to proclaim is not using words of eloquent wisdom or lofty speech, as Paul directs us in 1 Corinthians. The gospel is not mine, and then the, the gospel is not yours to ever change. This is the message that we are to proclaim. So let's look, let's go to God's word to see how the gospel was used and what that result will be. In the early church, in the book of Acts, we are reminded of what they did with this gospel message after the Holy Spirit had come on the day of Pentecost. It was a message that Peter and John continued to proclaim despite warnings given, for they could not help but speak of what they had seen and what they had heard. In Acts chapter 11, you can turn with me there if you'd like. In Acts chapter 11, again, during the time of the early church, we are going to see 
how the gospel was used by the people through God's sovereignty and His grace. I want to remind you that these people that we're going to read about in Acts 11, beginning in verse 19 here in just a minute, these were ordinary people, spirit-filled people, ordinary people. They had no formal education. They had no official title in any church. Let's go to the text and see what this says. Acts 11, 19, Acts 11, 19 through 24. Now there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking, to the, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Do we see a common theme there? I don't want to allude to it too late. There is an encouragement there that we already read that we see there. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of the faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Again, church, no formal education, ordinary spirit-filled people, the hand of the Lord was with them just like he is with us today. These people were scattered. These people were persecuted. They left the comfortability of their own homes. They had no buildings. They had no money. They had no programs. What did they have? They preached the Lord Jesus. They preached the gospel. They were evangelizing and making disciples. Their zealousness of making disciples got even the attention of the founding Christian church in Jerusalem. It's amazing to me that God used weak, ordinary, sinful people to advance his message during the early church. And it's still amazing to me that he would give us the opportunity as weak, sinful instruments to participate in this commission today. If we needed further confirmation that the gospel should be our message, I'd like to go to Paul and let's hear what he had to say by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not only did Paul preach the gospel, he sought to defend the gospel from the Judaizers in Galatia. If you remember, those who were taking another yoke, another gospel upon them, this gospel did not save. And Paul had to lay it down for them there and rebuke them for taking upon a gospel that did not save. This gospel message, again, by Paul, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, that was first importance. Paul preached. The Corinthians received. They stood upon this, and they were saved by this. Romans 1.16, a very common verse that many of us know, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also the Greek. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the good news. Verbal communication, including sign language, that's really cool whenever the gospel is even presented in sign language. Written form, even in a tract, 
the verbal communication is the only means by which people are brought into a right relationship with God. Loving people is important. Do not mistake that one bit. But people need the gospel. The Apostle Paul made this point in his letter to the Romans. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how were they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching again? Weak instruments, weak people, sinful people. He uses people like us to indiscriminately cast the gospel seed. Whether we sow, whether we water, God gives it to grow, the growth as we are told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. The gospel, hear me, the seed that is casted, the message of the gospel that we share is the good news. And it's the good news because there is bad news. The bad news is that we fall short of the glory of God. And our righteousness that we think that we have is no more than filthy rags. But praise be to God that Christ willingly, perfectly lived a life that we could never live. He substituted himself on the cross, taking the place of guilty sinners, dying the death that we deserve. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, secured a way for people like me and you to be reconciled to a holy God. This is the message that we give people. But there is one more piece. There is a response. In addition to the message of the gospel, we convey a response that God requires acknowledgement of sin. He requires repentance, believing or trusting in Jesus Christ and not upon your good works that you think that you have. Also with the understanding that we will follow him the rest of our days. God gives it growth. And true conversions are produced according to his will. The only time whenever we fail in evangelism is, whenever, not, is not whenever we evangelize and it doesn't produce the result that we think it deserves. The only time that we fail in evangelism is we fail to proclaim the message at all. God has given authority to Christ. Christ has all authority. Because of this authority, we take seriously this command to go, to make disciples. What else do we do? We baptize. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Jesus commands that not only we make disciples, we also mark disciples, and we do so by baptizing them. For those who have trusted in Christ and repented of their sins, oftentimes baptism is their first act of obedience. Throughout the book of Acts, it would take quite some time for us to go through all these. I'm just going to list them for you here. But throughout the book of Acts, baptism is always the first act that follows conversion. The 3,000 at Pentecost. The eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Saul in chapter 9. Cornelius in chapter 10. Lydia and the jailer in chapter 16. All of these were baptized following their conversion. Is baptism important? In short, yes. Baptism is one of two ordinances that we observe at Grace Covenant Church. Ordinance meaning that it's been ordained. It's important. Jesus commanded it. Does baptism save? No, it does not. God saves. God justifies. On the basis of people placing their trust their faith 
alone in Jesus Christ. And this faith is not our own doing, but it is even a gift of God. A God who saves by his grace with the Father electing, the Son purchasing, the Holy Spirit drawing, sealing, and sanctifying. It's been said that the only thing that we contribute to salvation is sin itself. So if baptism doesn't save, what is the purpose? We have a book here that the elders give out called Understanding Baptism. And many of you, we've already given this resource to you to go over with your little ones, your, your children who have made a profession. And I'd like to read something from Understanding Baptism. The author writes, Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking them off from the world. Praise be to God that Grace Covenant Church this year has experienced so many baptisms where these were immersed in water and baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, thus identifying yourself with Christ in his death, burial, and his resurrection. We teach as well. We are told to go we are told to make disciples, we evangelize, we baptize, and we also teach. The last portion of this imperative, we are told to go, to make disciples, going back to the text, teaching them to observe and obey all that I have commanded you, individually and corporately with the church. There are different ways that we carry out making disciples in the context of the church we teach whether it's in the sunday school hour with our faithful teachers as they teach our little ones aren't you just so thankful for good sunday school teachers church teaching our little ones teaching our youth in adult sunday school hour whenever we have men who are being raised up or the elders teaching sunday school We have teaching that happens in our care groups. And we have many faithful teachers that have even begun today with Sunday school. A little shout out to you guys. Thank you so much. We have new care group leaders that are starting. Shout out to you guys. Thank you so much for serving the body of Christ. We teach the church was in mind whenever Jesus gave the imperative to teach. The church has the obligation to be God's means of growing people in grace. If we were, if you were unable to make it on Friday, there was a wonderful service that celebrated, that, that honored um, Brother Audie's life where Joel preached a, a wonderful sermon out of Titus. Not only do I feel that Audie's life gives us a snapshot of faithfulness in being a disciple or faithfulness in discipleship, but I think Titus too is very helpful. You can go with me there if you'd like. This is Titus 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands, 
and children to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame. Have nothing evil to say about us. A wonderful snapshot of what it looks like to have discipleship in the local church. Not only Titus, but going back to Acts 11. Maybe you have your thumb there. You can go back there with me. But at the conclusion of what we just read about the early church, we get a quick, brief little snapshot of discipleship. It was important then. Surely it is important now. So Barnabas, this is in verse 25. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples there were first called Christians. We know that teaching occurs in the local church. And again, I am so thankful to be a part of a church where we have zealous people who love the Lord, who love to serve, who are willing to step into the trenches to teach the people of God. I am so glad to be part of this church with you people. Where else do we teach? There is obvious teaching and evangelism. Do we not teach the gospel to lost people? We are called to make disciples, though. We teach the gospel. We're called to make disciples, but we're not called to make converts. There is a huge difference in making disciples and making converts. Conversion is so exciting. To see the Lord working in the life of someone, the light just comes on. They are aware that they are a sinner. They are aware that they need a Savior. And the Holy Spirit convinces that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they call upon the Lord to be saved. It's a beautiful thing, church. But the command is to make disciples. So therefore, we teach through discipleship. Mark Dever, with nine marks, helps. He gives, I believe, what a, a good summation of what discipling or discipleship is. He goes, discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. Continuing, he goes, discipleship is the term I use to describe our own following Christ. Discipling is the subset of that, which is helping someone else follow Christ. Whenever we think about going and making disciples, often not, we, we probably think about um, hopping on a jet plane and, and going to a remote village to make disciples there, to evangelize, to, to share the gospel, to fulfill a need loving God and loving neighbor and sharing the gospel and, and praying for the Lord to do a work there. But Parker County is included in you making disciples. Remember and hear me out. The Lord calls people like you and me to go to those remotest places of the world, to the ends of the earth, to proclaim the gospel. And if that is a call that is in your life, it would be wise to obey that command, to take heed of that call. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I am not dismissing the Lord calling people to be missionaries. But without getting into the different participles of the Great Commission, 
Making disciples is a lifestyle. It's as you are going, make disciples, which doesn't require you to leave Parker County. What is another way besides within the incorporated limits of Weatherford or even Parker County? Parents, doing spiritual good to someone so they will be more like Christ. This should be taking place in the home. One pastor I recall called discipleship in the home the apex of discipleship. It's a noble thing. It is a high calling to disciple, to make disciples of your your children. I believe that doing that not only can be seen in the New Testament, but in the entirety of God's Word, going back to the Old Testament. Let me read for you Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. Hear me with this verse, church. This is the value that God places on parental discipleship. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them whenever you sit in your house, whenever you walk by the way, whenever you lie down, and whenever you rise. For all you Puritan lovers, Jonathan Edwards, he goes, every Christian family ought to be a little church, consecrated to Christ, wholly influenced and governed by his roles. This is also the attitude that we convey in our church covenant. We also engage to maintain family and personal devotions to educate our children in the Christian faith, to seek the salvation of our family and our acquaintances. Parents, discipleship in the home is something that we should all be doing if you have kids. And to be honest with you, I don't think that that component of family discipleship ever leaves. Even though your kids are grown, you are still called to speak God's word in their life. Fellow parents, if your children are disciples of Jesus, it's really simple. You help them learn more about the Lord. Not to the neglect of you knowing more about the Lord. So parents, as you are growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord, so too you equip your children and you grow them in grace, Lord willing, in the knowledge of the Lord. And parents, one last encouragement and reminder. We have the responsibility of disciple-making in the home But God only has the power to open up blind eyes of your children and brings them into faith. Your child's salvation is never a credit to your perfect parenting. You should not ever beat yourself up if your child runs from the Lord despite your best efforts. I love Paul Tripp and what he had to say. He he goes, God has tasked parents with many things, but nowhere in his word has he tasked you with the responsibility to create heart change. Teaching should be occurring in the church. Teaching should be happening in the home. What other ways does it look like, Pastor Dennis, to, still sounds weird calling me that, or to refer yourself as that, to go there for? We give. We give and we support organizations. And we do this for, as Dave said this morning, 
because there are people who need to be reached that we can't reach. So organizations like To Every Tribe and In Word and Deed, the Blairs and the Entwistles and Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, their job is to go to those places that we can't reach to do physical and spiritual good, to proclaim the gospel. I love Dave's example this morning. He goes, we're a bridge. So we give to support their ministry as they go to help build the bridge between the church and the people who are unreached. So what does it look like to obey, go therefore? We teach and we also give. In church, this sermon convicted me so much. I was telling uh, someone a little bit ago just how much this sermon uh, convicted me. And I told someone earlier in the week, and they were like, good, and amen, this is, this is, this is good. Um, and I, I will preface what I'm going to have to say next with this. Vody Balkum said once, if you can't say amen, you say ouch. So you keep that in mind as we go into this. Back whenever I was a little kid, me and my family lived with my grandmother for a time. And um, times are so different. I'm 42 now. Um, I remember back whenever I was eight, nine years old. Um, in the 80s, it feels like times were so different, right? Kids were like playing outside, and, and this was like a super common thing. Neighbors knew each other, right? Neighbors knew each other. Neighbors borrowed eggs and like cups of sugar. Does that even happen anymore? I think we would rather go to the store to drive five minutes than, hey neighbor, can I borrow some milk, eggs, or sugar? We live in a backyard culture. And I am guilty of this. We would rather go to the backyards where we wouldn't be seen by anybody so we wouldn't have to talk to anybody instead of going to the front yards where we're exposed, where our neighbors can wave and talk about the weather, right? When's the last time you had a conversation with your neighbor? How would your neighbor describe you? Would your, would your neighbor even know you? How about this? If not your neighbors, what about your coworkers? How do your coworkers know you? Do they really know you? Would they describe you as being hospitable? I think about what the author of Hebrews had to say in Hebrews 13 where he exhorts us to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Would your neighbors and your co-workers know you as hospitable? This is pricking me hard, guys. This hurts. This is cutting deep. Are you known around the office at work as the person who is often bitter about this nation's administration and the rising gas prices and the student loan forgiveness? Or are you known as someone who, man, they, they keep on sharing their faith with me. He's that religious nut. She, she keeps inviting me to her church. Are these how people know you? Back in my day, we called them Jesus freaks. I remember having something on my locker that said I was a Jesus freak back in the D.C. talk days. Or Bible thumpers, right? I was even called that a time or two. Is this how your coworkers and your neighbors, is this what they refer to you as? And I understand the struggle, church. This is a part of our spiritual DNA to make a difference in the world for Christ. We know that humanity's greatest need is salvation. And we long to see our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends come 
to respond to the gospel and repentance and faith. But if we're honest, this is where we struggle. We know that they need the good news, but we have a hard time opening our homes and we have a hard time opening our mouths. And if we never open our homes and if we never open our mouths, how is the gospel going to be known? And how is it going to be shared? And if you have a right view and understanding of God's sovereignty in everything, we know that he doesn't make mistakes. And we know that his plans can't be thwarted. And we know that he works out all things according to the counsel of his own will. And where he has placed you geographically within the confines of Parker County, where he has assigned you for work, the neighbors that live right by you, the homeschool co-op that you're a part of, it is no mistake. And it's hard to have meaningful conversations about anything with your neighbors, your co-workers, other homeschool moms, if we don't actually know them. In a book, The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life, the authors write these words. Clearly, the aim of hospitality is more than merely inviting someone into our home, sharing a good meal and sharing a few stories and calling it a night. We are missionaries after all. Paul reminded us we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And the authors included one Charles Spurgeon quote, of course, saying, every Christian is either a missionary or an apostle. So Dennis, I understand the Great Commission as a command, and I understand that it's a priority. Clearly, we have seen that from Scripture this morning. What can I do? What, 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 it, what could it look like for me to go therefore? And if that's you this morning, I'm going to hope, hopefully share some helpful things with you. First thing I think is helpful is for you to pray for a greater burden for the lost. To pray for your family, to pray for your neighbors, to pray for anyone unconverted that you know that salvation would come. Pray that our church would be a sending church. This is how God, through Christ, makes his appeal through people. We go to where good churches aren't. Good Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. I hope and pray that you are praying towards that end and what that would look like for us at Grace Covenant. Thirdly, pray for boldness. As the believers in Acts 4 did, they pleaded with God to open doors. Pray for what you would give in support of ministries like in word and deed to every tribe, the Entwistles, the Blairs, who are making disciples of all nations. These are the people that we support. Welcome people into your life and get to know them. But don't get to know them as projects. Get to know them because they're made in the image of God and they have value and we're called to love them. Get to know them. Lastly, share Christ. Going back to the authors of biblical hospitality, they say, as you take a bold step of speaking the good news, you may feel nervous and reluctant for fear that you will be rejected, but understand the gospel is attractive and it's attractive to the people who are hurting even right next door to you. Whether as a parent or as a neighbor, as a coworker, anyone that God has planted in your life, as you go living out in obedience, the great commission, the last command and the first priority, remember this last encouragement. 
that Christ gives in our text today. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. What's encouraging about this? Well, we know that Christ has all authority. And just like he was with those believers, the the hand of the Lord was with those believers in Acts 11. What's really neat is in Matthew 1, 23, we're told about this Emmanuel, this God who is with his people. And what we're told in Matthew 1, 23 is still the promise that we're given in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. He is with us. In conclusion, church, Rest all of your hopes in evangelism on the sovereign grace of God. And as you plant the seeds of the good news, even though it seems like it's falling on deaf ears, even though it seems like their heart of stone is impenetrable, remember verse 17. Remember how we read that, the whole 16 through 20? Even though in 17... It says that some people doubted and they saw the risen Christ and they still doubted. Some would say, some scholars at this moment, whenever they saw the risen Christ and some still doubted, this is what Paul is talking about whenever more than 500 people saw the risen Christ. People will still doubt. understand that though some will doubt it will go in one ear and out the other maybe even you'll experience conflict that's a whole another sermon right maybe 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 there's hostility remember this other promise of jesus's i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it understand ambassador the mission cannot and will not fail he is with you he is building his church and he allows us to participate with him pray for boldness proclaim his excellencies preach christ crucified and go go in confidence not in you Go in the one who has all authority, who is mighty to save. In 1922, the author of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus penned these words. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so very much for the opportunity, Lord, to proclaim your word this morning. Oh, God, my prayer is that you would give me and these saints of yours boldness that you would give us a greater burden for the lost. Lord, that the gospel would be proclaimed by your people here outside these four walls. Help us to be bold, to proclaim, and to live it out. Help our fathers and help our mothers understand their commission to be disciples in the home. Help them to steward well this important calling. Lord, I pray for our children and any others today who may not know you, Lord, that through your effectual call, you would make them aware of their sin. You would make them aware that they need a Savior and that their only hope in life and in death is the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would call upon the name of the Lord and that they will be saved. Lord, help us to be available to you. Help us to be hospitable, not only to strangers, but also to each other.
I pray all these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.